Hello and welcome to the IFS Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And today we're going to talk about VAT, value-added tax. It's a tax that doesn't actually get much attention, at least not at the moment. It's one tax politicians aren't arguing about. They're not arguing over the rate. There aren't any calls that I'm aware of to use VAT cut as a pre-election giveaway. And it's unlikely to get even a cameo walk-in part in the party manifestos. Yet it's our third largest tax. And since it was introduced 50 years ago, the amount raised has roughly doubled. And while we might not all love VAT, one writer has called it unquestionably the most successful fiscal innovation of the last half century, perhaps the most economically efficient way in which countries can raise significant tax revenues. Lots of money can be got through VAT, and there are good reasons for thinking that, at least in principle, could be a pretty efficient way of bringing the money in. Of course, it's not all good, and not just because it increases the price of things that we buy. We in the UK have implemented it in a pretty complex and costly way. Today, what is VAT? What's wrong with it? What should politicians be doing to try and fix it? Should they just be ignoring it or actually looking to change it? Joining me today, I'm delighted to say Helen Miller, who's Deputy Director here at the IFS and runs all of our work on tax, and Dan Needle, a lawyer who's a founder of Tax Policy Associates, a non-profit which advises policymakers and journalists on tax policy. And as I say, Dan is a lawyer and indeed a former very senior tax lawyer. VAT, Helen, what is it? How much does it raise? Who pays it? Yep, good start with the basics. So value-added tax is a tax on all sales, whether to final consumers or from businesses to other businesses, but where the businesses doing the selling and applying the VAT can deduct the VAT they've paid on their inputs. So imagine a company who's uh, making tables and selling tables, they charge VAT on the tables they sell, but they can deduct the cost of the VAT they paid on the wood that they bought to build the tables. So in the end, it's a tax on the final value of product, but it's collected along the value chain, along the production chain as things are built. It raises around £160 billion. So as you said, it's our third largest tax, around 15% of total government revenue. And that's gone up a lot uh, since we introduced it. And of course, how much a given household spends is going to depend on what they spend and what they buy. But contrary to popular belief, it's not regressive. So how much you spend on VAT as a share of spending is roughly the same across the spending distribution. And then perhaps final fun fact to get us going is that the main rate of VAT is 20%, but there are a whole series of reduced and zero rates and a whole bunch of services and goods that are exempt from VAT altogether. And a lot of the complexity I'm sure we'll talk about comes from those cases where we're deviating from the standard 20% treatment. And, and it's getting on for half of all spending that's not on stuff at full VAT, is it? It's quite a large chunk. It is a large chunk. To so give you one sense of scale, I can't number off the top of my head, is that I told you it raises about £160 billion. The value of the reduced rates, the zero rates exemptions, are about £100 billion. So it's a pretty chunky size of stuff that's not in the standard VAT treatment. And Dan, there's lots of reasons that VAT isn't as simple as as Helen made out in that answer. And one of them is that, as we've discovered, uh, a lot of things aren't subject to VAT at 20%, and a lot of things are, and you have to decide where that dividing line is. You've written many quotable quotes, but one of my favourite ones is when you said that any sufficiently detailed VAT rule is indistinguishable from satire. Perhaps you could explain that. The problem with VAT is that for understandable political reasons, politicians often want to create exemptions for some types of stuff. So take, for example, food. 
no politician wants to be the person who applies VAT to food. So we have a technically it's zero percent VAT if Sainsbury's sells you a pack of lentils. Say the problem is that things which are not raw ingredients food are subject to VAT. So if you're a restaurant, for example, meals you sell are subject to VAT. Where do you draw the line between the two? And the answer is, it doesn't really matter where you draw it. Wherever you draw it, you're going to have problems. For example, if you are a cafe and you sell a product which is cold and eaten off the premises, then it's 0% VAT. But if it's heated, then there's VAT if it's designed to be eaten while heated. If you heat it and then it's supposed to cool and then people eat it, then there's no VAT. And then you start getting layer upon layer of complexity. What if people like getting it when it's just been cooked and is warm? What if the packaging suggests that it's best warm, etc., etc.? And you see this all over the place, particularly with the food VAT exemption, because it is so irrational in where the line is drawn. So, so you have arguments, Jaffa cakes, are they cakes or are they biscuits? Giant marshmallows, are they confectionery? subject to VAT? Or are they an ingredient used for making s'mores toasted over a campfire? In which case, there's 0% VAT. So if I was selling marshmallows, uh, I would 100% sell them as giant marshmallows right all over the packaging. Highly recommend that you use this for making s'mores, and then magically they'll be 20% cheaper than my competitor who doesn't do that. Put it that way, it does sound pretty mad. Um, And you get that in all sorts of places. As you say, food, gingerbread men with different amounts of chocolate on them, subject to different amounts of VAT. Children's clothing doesn't have VAT on it, so some manufacturers try and get away with suggesting things that are for children when, in fact, they're aimed at at adults and so on. Yeah, I've got a friend Uh, who's quite small, and she buys children's shoes, and they're a lot cheaper because there's no VAT. She's a tax avoider, I've told her. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and there's, a, there's I, I don't have it in front of me. There's a great quote from Damien McBride, who used to be rather, um, shall we say, pugnacious advisor to, to Gordon Brown, uh, who used to work on this stuff, and said there are teams of people uh, in HMRC who you find eating various sweet food to determine whether it's a cake or a biscuit. And it, it's a bizarre set of things that you have to make the choices about. I guess my favourite example, again, thinking about food, is that most pets are subject to VAT, but not rabbits, because rabbits are edible. So if you want a pet and want to be a tax avoider, get a rabbit. What about you? Have you got any favourites, Helen? I don't know. My classic favourite was always a gingerbread person. You can have a gingerbread man with two eyes, but add a smile, you've got to add VAT. It just seems like a the distinction between a smile and not a smile is particularly ridiculous. I also love the marshmallow example. Something that's covered in chocolate, there's going to be VAT. You're allowed two eyes, two chocolate eyes, and HMRC will accept it's not covered in chocolate. But not but a chocolate smile. <laughs> I think a smile would, would render it valuable. You cannot buy anywhere in the UK a gingerbread man with a chocolate smell. But it's worth saying, obviously, <laughs> I think the food is where there is, there's serious... There's also lots of examples in... There's the first skin flowchart, which is just particularly bizarre. You've got to see it to believe it. It's just the like... The what flowchart, Helen? There's, a, there's the first skin flowchart. It's like, did, where did the fur come from? Was it from a yak or a goat? Was it in Mongolia? Was it in Yemen? I mean, I'll, I'll post it afterwards. You have to see it to believe it. But I think these, these examples <laughs> are often... They, they're good for a laugh and they're good sort of pub banter. But... I think the, <laughs> you have funny pub banter, Helen. <laughs> in some circles, in some circles. But 
uh, th- I think that there are some more st- examples that are obviously serious. So I guess the one that, you know, we re- have a reduced 5% rate on domestic energy that encourages people to use gas boilers and is against our broader aims with net zero. So there are some cases where even on their own terms, they're obviously more problematic. Um, and it's also just more broadly, once you add all these things up, you do get a whole set of real problems, including you're distorting people's purchasing decisions, firms' production decisions, and just adding a huge amount of compliance costs to work out how to comply with the VAT before you even think about all the hours of lawyer talent that is wasted, in my opinion, having to work out at what point a crisp is a crisp or whatever it is. So I think although it's good for a laugh, there's a serious point here that this is not, these aren't just like funny things at the margins. These have a real effect on on our taxes and they impose real costs on people. Yeah, but best case, the cost is the compliance and dealing with the rules. Worst case, it produces results which are economically undesirable. You, You mentioned the VAT on heating oil can have that effect. Another is the treatment of construction. So if I build a new house, then there's no VAT on that. Because otherwise, if I was a seller of houses, suddenly I'd be selling over 20% more and there would be revolution in the streets of Tunbridge Wells. You can see why the politicians don't want VAT on houses. If I build an extension, on the other hand, it's not a new house, there will be VAT. Where do you draw the line? It turns out where you draw the line is, if I knock my house down, keeping a single wall and rebuild, VAT on the whole thing. If I knock my house down to the foundations and rebuild, 0% VAT. So construction decisions absolutely are taken in a way which makes no sense and is economically inefficient just to do that extra bit of demolition and qualify for 0% VAT rather than 20%. And that, again, is an inevitable consequence of saying we want 0% VAT on the, on the sale of new houses. Yeah, it's completely mad. Much better to knock the whole house down and save 20% than leave 20% of the house there and build the rest around it. Yeah, but that's stupid. Uh, it is completely stupid. Just going back to what Helen was saying about the first skin flowchart, uh, just to give you a sense of the craziness, this is the series of 12 questions to determine whether something is vatable or not. This is published by HMRC. And the first question is, are you satisfied that the article qualifies as clothing and meets the test of design and suitability? Well, that's a pretty tough question to start with. And then you go all the way down to question 12, where you're determining, it's depending, you get to whether the fur comes from goats or kids. And question 12 literally does the goat or kid originate from Mongolia, Yemen, or Tibet? If yes, it's standard rated, and if no, it's zero rated. Now, exactly what HMRC has got against Mongolian goats as opposed to any other kind of goats? Believe, there are people out there whose know. career has, like, part of their productive working life has been spent writing that down and then complying with it. I mean, surely we can think of better things for these people to do. <laughs> I mean. Perhaps they can't do anything else. As we know from Dan, tax lawyers aren't employable for very much. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're, they're highly valued. There's, there's many better things we could do with, with, with tax lawyers than get them to do uh, flow skin fur charts. So, Helen, other sort of particularly economically damaging Well, another one, I mean, so, another thing I think worth saying, we talk about zero rates and they're easy ones to get our heads around. Exemptions are a big problem here too. So zero rate just means you're in the VAT system still. You can deduct, we talk about this, this chain, you can deduct VAT on the inputs you've purchased, but you don't have to charge VAT on the outputs. Exemption is different than you're outside of the system. So it's, I guess, sounds good in the sense that you haven't got to charge VAT on the products you sell, but you're buying things from other places 
and you can't then deduct the VAT input uh, cost. Um, that kind of breaks the VAT chain. So that in itself is a problem. There are also horrible complexities that arise when you have a firm that is selling some things that are exempt and some things that are not exempt. An example I quite like is of a supermarket who's selling both food and clothes and things like that and financial services that are exempt. They have some head office operations. They've got to allocate those to these different products, allocating them to which are exempt, which are zero rated. It's just hugely complex just to try to work out what the VAT position is. So the fact that we have these big exemptions where exemption of financial services is the big one also just adds a whole bunch of complexity. Again, as Dan said, it's both the compliance cost. You have to bear a real cost to be able to work with this system. And it's the economic distortions. Firms and people are making decisions they wouldn't otherwise have made because of the tax. So we are driving things to be less efficient than they otherwise would be. The VAT financial services exemption, I think, is particularly serious because of the size, scale and sophistication of the financial services business. And throughout the financial services sector, exactly how the exemption applies is always difficult and uncertain. And that drives bad decision making and it drives avoidance. So tell us a bit more about that, Dan. I mean, just so the listeners can get their head round, what does what is a financial service when it comes to exempting from VAT? What does it mean to exempt it from VAT and why does that create so much complexity? Let's say that I'm a bank and I'm lending you money to, to, to buy your house. The mortgage interest that you pay me, it, it's outside VAT entirely. That means that I can't, strictly that's not an exemption, but it behaves similarly to an exemption. That means that I can't recover my VAT on, say, legal fees or the rent of the premises that I operate from. That then in turn means I will want to rent premises which have VAT on them. So I will rent premises where the landlord has used a special election, which means that there's no VAT on the rent. And that then marks that building for life as having no VAT on it which has complications in terms of the construction, how they recover costs. These effects ripple throughout the economy. I mean, perhaps it's worth also just pulling back, because I know we're getting to the weeds here, but for people who are new to this bizarre system, if we had a VAT that was working without all of these these problems, then what you'd have at the end of the day is everything that was sold to a final customer would have a VAT added to it at the same rate. So the choices people were making between whether to buy biscuits or cakes or popcorn or marshmallows or whether to buy gas boilers or whatever it is, or whether to which buildings to rent, whether to knock their building down or do an extension, all of those decisions wouldn't be being affected by the VAT rate. Instead, what we have, because the different rates and the different exemptions when they kick in is not that. People's choices are being ultimately decided, determined not only by what's commercially the best decision, but by these VAT rules. So across the board, decisions about what to buy, how to do the renovation, which financial services to use are being distorted. That's the heart of the problem. It's coming around for these complicated reasons, but the heart of the problem is that the tax is driving those decisions. And we don't see that with other taxes. Um, The amount of income tax an employee pays is unaffected by whether they're working building teddy bears or or, or making mortgages. Corporation tax is unaffected by, by the nature of the business paying the tax. Only VAT, because of the way that it ends up being paid by the consumer, do you see this political pressure to exempt zero rate favoured sectors, but that makes VAT a far less effective and efficient tax. Many of our listeners are no doubt thinking, charging VAT on food, on fuel, we know that poorer people spend much bigger fractions of their budget on food than richer people. That's going to be straightforwardly regressive. Don't we want a progressive tax system? Isn't that why we are where we are? 
Yep, I think that's, that is the, and that's exactly what Dan's saying about why we get political pressure. It is true that if we overnight just taxed uh, food and children's clothing, that would have a, a bigger effect on poorer people um, who do spend more of their budgets on those things. But it's also true to say that VAT zero rates are a horribly inefficient way to help poorer people. And that's simply because richer people also spend more in cash terms and all those things. So food might be a bigger share of the budget for poor people, but I'm sure all of us spend more on food than than, than poorer households. So a lot of the cash uh, giveaway is being sort of wasted in distributional terms on higher income households. Said differently, if we wanted to help poorer people, it'd be much you get much more bang for your buck by VATing all food, raising that revenue giving part of it back through the benefit system, so through higher universal credit, for example, you could both help poor people in a more targeted way and have money left over. So it's a it's an inefficient way to do it. I think the biggest political argument against what I've just said is just VAT it and then do it for the benefit system. Some people argue that benefits can be eroded over time. It's, it'd be easier to do that. Whereas actually these VAT zero rates seem particularly sticky and they're hard to get rid of. So maybe they're better than nothing. But I think we're thinking about what a well-designed system would look like. If we were starting from a VAT that had across the board 20% rate and you said, I want to help poor people, how do I do it? Having a VAT zero rates for food would be pretty low down my list of ways to help poor people. But we keep getting lobby groups arguing that there should be new 0% rates for their favourite products to help people who they say can't afford it. Time and time again, we're seeing this. We're seeing this about sunscreen. Uh, We're seeing this about charging of electric vehicles. We saw it around tampons. We saw it around e-books. And the demand is always the same, that this product is too expensive, particularly for the poor. Therefore, we should cut VAT. So this is a failure of politics here, by the sound of it. We're sitting here saying it's pretty obvious, given where we are, you extend the VAT base and you can more than compensate poorer people on average. And indeed, um, the last thing we want to do is make it narrower and, uh, and narrower. And it's worth to say just briefly in international terms, we've got a pretty narrow VAT base. It's quite unusual to have zero VAT on food, isn't it? Yes, yeah, so we definitely have a narrower base than the rest of most of the rest of Europe. We raise a similar share of revenue from VAT, but from a narrower base. So the VAT we do raise is comes from a smaller base. We are unusual in that in that regard. So it's perfectly possible for a civilized country to have it some is. VAT on food, at least, even if if you suggest it here, you're considered rather uncivilized quite often. Well, why have we ended up where we are, and what's the history of why we've ended up with this rather odd tax? I think part of it is that before, so you mentioned earlier we had the VAT introduced 50 years ago. Before that, we had something called a purchase tax, which basically tries to draw a distinction between luxuries and necessities. So we've imported some of that into the design of our VAT system to try to keep some distinctions between cakes and chocolate covered biscuits, for example. But given what we talked about earlier, you clearly can't make a case that for that kind of luxury versus necessity between marshmallows, depending whether you eat them on a stick. I think we've just taken that to a sort of absurd level. So I think part of it is just a history hangover. And then part of it is the difficulty of getting rid of it is all the politics we're talking about, is that who wants to be the politician to stand up and say, I'm going to tax children's clothing and food? Good luck with that. I mean, as we saw with the the attempt to tax whatever it was, pasties, even when you try to make a very small change, it can be quite salient and people don't like it. So I think it's, it's a kind of a historical accident that's become embedded. Mm. I think it was introduced purchase tax during the Second World War as a way of trying to persuade people only to focus on the necessities so that the non-necessities were sent towards the war effort. So we focused a lot on the sort of zero rate and the boundaries between gingerbread men with different amounts of chocolate on them. But there's another issue, isn't there, Dan, when it comes to what businesses 
charge VAT. So if I'm a small enough business, I don't actually need to charge VAT to my customers. Yes, only when you hit the VAT threshold of £85,000 do you have to start charging VAT. And that has some peculiar effects. You, you can do a chart. You can do a chart looking at how many businesses there are at each level of turnover in the UK. What you'd expect to see is lots of tiny businesses, rather fewer large businesses, and a some kind of straight line or nice curve between the two. What you actually see is a fairly straight line and then it pops upwards and then precipitously drops at the 85,000 point because businesses are intentionally keeping their turnover under that 85,000 pound point. And they're doing that in the main, partly because of the compliance cost, but more because having to suddenly add something like 20% onto their costs makes them uncompetitive with the other businesses that are still under 85 grand and don't have to add 20%. That's a big deal. If only you could have seen Dan with his finger drawing this chart, which he showed going <laughs> gradually down, then up, and then plummeting off off a cliff. And it really is one of those charts that us tax nerds love to see because you can absolutely see how taxes can impact behaviour. That you've got loads and loads and loads of businesses with turnovers around eighty eight to eighty four thousand, and absolutely none with turnovers of eighty six thousand pounds a year for very obvious reasons. So what's the answer, Dan? Is the answer to make that a much bigger threshold or to or to make it a much smaller threshold? So we have the highest threshold among comparable economies in the world. We strictly we have the highest threshold in the OECD. The making it higher all that would do is take our chart and shift it across to the right. And that might even have worse effects because then you'll have more serious businesses with more growth potential being caught in this trap. So I think a better answer may well be to reduce it and bring it down to our European peers, which would be around the sort of 30,000 mark. And whilst that appears politically difficult, we might be able to sugar that pill if it was clear that all the revenues raised would be used to reduce the headline rate, take it down from 20% to something like 17 or 18%. Would you raise enough to do that? That's a lot. Uh, you, I've done a back-of-the-envelope calculation, and I think you would. Wow. I mean, it's about telling people, think about, again, big picture economics, why do we have a threshold? But in some ways, the obvious question is, why do we have a threshold at all? Why don't we make it zero? Mm. And the kind of the, the, the trade-off here is that the reason we don't just make it zero is because there are compliance costs and admin costs for the government of having to you know chase up the VAT. And we, the argument, I think, which is a reasonable one, is that for very small firms, it's not worth bringing them into the VAT system to make them pay the huge compliance cost, have the huge admin burden for the government for not very much tax revenue. So the trade-off here and, and what should determine where the threshold is set in an ideal world is you have a higher threshold, then fewer firms have to face the compliance burden. That's good news. But you lose revenue because you've taken more firms out. You have a lower threshold and you bring more firms into the compliance burden, but you get more revenue. So that's where the, the kind of the trade-off is. And I think from the economics literature, there's not a great answer to exactly where that threshold should be because it's going to depend on what those compliance burdens are empirically. And they're going to change over time depending on how good the VAT system is. So I don't think it's it's obvious exactly, there's not an obvious economics, here's exactly where the answer is, but there is a trade-off. The other thing I think to say is about the bunching that, that Dan pointed out, and as you said, Paul, economists love this kind of stuff, right? Because it's the, it's really, we can get our teeth into it. I think what we learn from that is actually something even broader than what we've talked about so far. So we have this big bunching at the threshold. That's real. 
it tells us something really important. And it doesn't just tell us about what's happening at the threshold. What it tells us is that firms are very responsive to the VAT system. That's going to be through some combination of they're responding to compliance costs. They don't want to have to bear those compliance costs. And or when they put, as, as Dan was describing, when they put their prices up, they can sell less stuff. Right? But they aren't things that are specific just to the threshold. They're going to be true for all firms that have to bear the compliance costs of dealing with the VAT or who, when they put their prices up, are going to sell less because people demand fewer things when the prices are 20% higher. So in my mind, what we learn from the bunching is not simply, it's not really about the threshold per se, it's about the, the broader VAT system. So when we're thinking about the design of VAT, we should be thinking about, hang on, these compliance costs are there for all firms. Think about it this way. If we deleted the threshold and said everyone's registered, we wouldn't be deleting the compliance costs. They would still be there. So even though we wouldn't see the nice bunching chart that economists love, we wouldn't have moved the problem. We, the problem would still be there. So the bunching is just how we see it. It's not the problem per se. Similarly, if firms are very responsive because when they put their prices up, they sell less, that's going to be true for a much broader set of firms than just those near the threshold. So I think the, the threshold is is interesting because it tells us something. But I think there's, a, there's sort of two policy issues here. One is where the threshold should be and what the policy trade-offs are around about that particular thing. And the other is, regardless of where you put the trade-off, I think we should be focusing on making sure the compliance burdens aren't higher than they, they need to be. And when we think about VAT compared to other taxes, bearing in mind that firms are very responsive to VAT. So I think we actually learn something much broader about from that bunching than just the threshold problem per se. That is an upside of the bunching. At least it allows us to learn something. Dan? Yes. So Compliance costs these days for micro businesses are very solvable with app-based solutions. So, so if you're a, I don't know, a coffee shop, there is no reason you can't have an app on your phone which takes a picture of receipts, plugs in with your credit card zapping solution and automatically generates the VAT figure. Now, HMRC is not there, would probably never be there, but any significant reduction in the threshold would have to be accompanied by a cooperation with third-party app providers to enable the private sector to develop apps like that. But I, I do believe, and people who know a lot more about VAT compliance than me believe, that the compliance issue for micro-businesses is nothing like it was 10 or 20 years ago. It, it is a very solvable problem. Just on that, I mean, as when the trade-off's going to vary over time and across countries for exactly one of those reasons, right? So countries mm. want to pick a threshold depending on how bad they think or how easy they think compliance is within their VAT system. It's great news if we've got a system that actually is easy to comply with for smaller firms, that that pulls a trade-off towards a lower threshold. That's exactly the kind of thing, that's the information you'd want to use to, say, go for a lower threshold rather than a higher one. Yeah. Well, as we were discussing before we came on air, I know our finance director at the IFS finds dealing with the VAT system really quite complicated because the IFS is a charity. Charities can't reclaim VAT paid on things that we buy. And that that creates actually creates quite a big cost for us that non-charitable businesses wouldn't uh, wouldn't face, and that is an issue with the VAT system because in, 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 with with VAT, the final customer is usually a person uh, or a household. But actually, a charity also counts as a final customer. So oddly, charities have to pay effectively pay VAT in a way that incorporated entities don't effectively have to pay VAT. Because you're not making supplies. You're, exactly. You, it's not so much because you're a charity. If you weren't a charity but did the same stuff, you'd be in the same position. You don't have customers. You've got no one to pass the VAT to, so you have to eat it yourselves. We don't charge for our outputs. We give a all of this podcast comes to you for free. Yeah. Which is highly VAT inefficient. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Absolutely. As do all of our publications, everything on our website. So do go and um, do go and look there and take advantage of the fact that we have to deal with all of this, all of this VAT compliance. Look, we said that VAT is the third biggest tax. What was it, 160 billion a year? Did you say, Helen? That's a, a big number. That, that, that's almost exactly what it costs to run the NHS, actually, in, the, in England. Next time you pay VAT, just think of it as your contribution towards running the NHS. And yet, the, the only times I can think of VAT in the last 15 years being in the news, back in 2011, the rate was raised from 17.5% to 20%. And then a couple of years later, George Osborne tried to put VAT on pasties. Uh, but for the last 10 years, I haven't heard anything about it at all, hardly. Is that is that fair? Yeah, uh, which so. is remarkable when we hear about income tax all of the time. Other than the examples Dan talked about, about the calls for sunscreen type things and the kind of what can we do with our Brexit freedoms. Yeah, it's not, given how big a tax it is, I think it's not very much in the news. Although worth reflecting, and you were hinting on this, that although it's, it's never talked about as a tax that needs to be cut before an election to get voters excited, if you look back over the last 50 years, the, there has been three ta- chunky tax increases. Mm. It has been a big part of the increase in overall tax revenues. Again, the, the 175 to 20% being an example of that. So if we're looking forward and thinking about in the next decade, are we going to have a bigger state? Do we need to raise more revenue? At some point, will a politician go and look for VAT? I doubt they'll ever tell you that in advance because they never do. But I wouldn't be surprised if at some point somebody wants some easy revenue and thinks that one of the big broad taxes and VAT is sitting there, it's been done before. So although it's not being given much attention, I think it it should be given some attention just because of its size, if nothing else. And there are other countries with higher rates of VAT than us. We're slightly on the low side. I think of the large economies, only Germany at 19% is lower. Putting it up by 1% or 2% could be said to be consistent with other countries in Europe. The reason I'm hesitating is because I think we raise a similar share of our tax revenue from VAT as other countries, but do it from a narrower base. Some of the things... Yeah. We have a much lower raise on some things and must have a higher rate on other things in order to make that work, I think. Well, I don't think, yeah, but though, as, as Dan said, I think pretty sure that the standard rate in many countries is above 20. So I'm not sure how we square that. Maybe we just have household consumption as a bigger fraction of our economy. Or, or, that is um, mystifying. I don't, I don't know what the answer to that conundrum is. Some, so someone should look, look into it. Let's look it up and post it. it. Yeah. If, if only there was a charity that did lots of research into, into tax and yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll check it out and, have, and watch this space. Um, but it is look again, big picture. If the government, if if a future government is thinking about where do we want to raise more revenue in future, and then maybe they don't want to do that. But if they did want to do that, it would be it'd be foolish not to be looking at our big three taxes, the big workhorse taxes of our system, of which VAT is one. And therefore, we shouldn't keep take our eye off of it and forget it's there. But also, if we are going to increase any taxes, this is what we, I always say: is that the structure of the tax really matters. VAT has got bigger over time. We've raised double the amount of revenue. We haven't fixed any of the structural problems. We haven't changed the zero rates. We haven't changed the reducer. We haven't fixed exemptions. So we've become, we've become more and more reliant on this tax without doing any of the structural reforms to it. It'd be nice if at some point we could get to making it a nicer tax. We're 50 years in, maybe the next 50 years we could. <laughs> well, here's a conspiracy theory for you. The, the, the reason Ooh. that we don't hear much about VAT is it's very hard to raise more from VAT without doing so in a highly visible way. We just had the most immense tax rises, I think, in recent British history by politicians doing nothing, just allowing fiscal creep and inflation to bring more and more people into higher tax bands. There isn't really an equivalent to that for VAT, save the VAT threshold, which has a fairly uh, much smaller revenue-raising effect. 
So I, um, that threshold is frozen, isn't it, for, for a period frozen. of time? Yeah. Yes, it's frozen. There's, a, there's a little bit of creep there, but it's yeah, a, uh, a glacial creep. It, it raises nothing like these of ten plus billions you get from fiscal creep, and raising the rate would be highly visible. Extending VAT to food, children's clothes, etc., whilst tax property people may be dancing in the streets with happiness, I suspect in election <laughs> manifesto terms, it is poison. I think we can probably agree on that. And actually, one of the the last effort to really do this was in 1992 or 1993, when Norman Lamont tried to put VAT at the full rate on domestic gas and electricity consumption, with quite a big and generous package of, of measures to make sure that lower income people weren't worse off on average. But that did not go down well, I think it'd be fair to say. It got stuck at 8%, not the then 17.5% full rate and then in 1997, Labour took that down to 5%. The consequence of which is that we effectively subsidise the burning of gas in households because we charge lower VAT on that than we do on anything else that people consume. Uh, again, thinking about the absurdity of our tax system, let me just worth repeating that, because we charge 5% on electricity and gas consumption and 20% on most other stuff, we are effectively subsidising people to burn gas and electricity in their homes at a time when we're supposedly looking to try to get to net zero. Um, we're probably running to the end of the time, so I'll leave you with that particularly exciting thought, that if you really care about climate change, you also care about the structure of the VAT system and the fact that it uh, subsidises uh, things that it probably shouldn't subsidise. Um, Dan, it's been great having you on again on the IFS Zooms In. Brilliant to talk to you about any aspect of tax, even VAT. And Helen, again, fantastic to have you talking to us about VAT, gingerbread men and eating rabbits, though I think that might have been me. Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the IFS Zooms In. To see more of our work, do visit www.ifs.org.uk. To see more of Dan's work, visit www.taxpolicy.org.uk. To further support us, that's the IFS, consider becoming a member for as little as £10 a month. You can find out more in the episode description. 